Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, folks. It's the one and only V, the Gorilla Economist, coming to you on this recorded show with my main man, Matthew Errett. You can find Matthew Errett over at CanadianPatriot.com, as well as the Rising, Found, uh, Rising Tide Foundation.net. The links will be in the description box. And also, subscribe to his Substack over at, at Substack.com, Matthew Errett. Again, the links will be in the description box. And this is the Geostrategic, uh, the geostrategic Hour. And we're glad that you've joined us, folks. And again, also check out roguenews.com, where this interview will also be posted. And make sure you check out our paid sponsors, mycbdedibles.com. Mycbdedibles.com for all your CBD edible goodness. No matter what it is, whether it's coffee or doggy treats, they have what you need. Mycbdedibles.com. And with that all out of the way, Matt, it is great for you to be back with us. Uh, I'm excited, man. Where do you want to begin? There's a lot to cover. And you want to... There is specifically hammer out this um, cadre of criminals, these lunatics known as the Trilateral Commission. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, too. And I I, I, this week I just uh, wrote an article um, just making fun of the insanity of the economists. And uh, right now there's a a debate going on. It's it's such a, a fake, pretentious, insane debate regarding two schools of thought that are hammering it out over how to deal with the oncoming, uh, the onset of massive inflation. Oh yeah. Which we know it's, it's we're already really beginning to feel it, but we ain't seen nothing yet. There's I think 4.2 or 4.3% inflation already in the past uh, few months, but this is not going down. Not now, according to Jay Powell over at the Fed. It's only, no. it's only 2%. According to, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, <laughs> and that's where you get a lot of people playing with data, playing with statistics to get their own agenda across. But the debate now is, um, you know, Yellen, Janet Yellen just came back from her G7 uh, uh, finance minister's meeting saying that, yeah, we, we should be prepared for an age of increased interest rates to sort of scale back this inflation. Um, but we're not going to do it anytime soon. And we, we should wait until 2023, but then get ready because it's going to get high. Um, echoing the calls of, you know, Paul Volcker back in the 1980s, 80 to 82, when the interest rates skyrocketed to deal with the, the inflation of the 70s. Now, other economists in the Deutsche Bank, like the Deutsche Bank's chief economist said, no, don't do that. No, you, it's, it's nice that you're, you're trying to give people a, a little bit of breathing space and all, and it's good that you're, uh, we, we like the fact that you're, you're, you've got some social programs, but you should put the, infl- the, the interest rates up right now. Don't lose another second or else it's going to be a time bomb that's going to destroy the world. And there's like this existential freaking out uh, discussion happening. Um, but it's, like I said, it's a fake debate. It's kind of like, you know, two, en- two engineers on the deck of the Titanic saying that we should either speed up the Titanic or slow down the Titanic, n- ignoring the fact that the hull has a systemic rupture. It's going to fuck, it's going to go. Like you can't <laughs> stop. <laughs> Full speed, Mr. Tristan. <laughs> no, go slower. <laughs> so... The, the, the whole thing betrays the fact that both of them are, are ultimately in agreement that the, the, the underlying 
problems are not problems, that we could just work around them. And that in both of those cases of these opposing two camps, supposedly, um, they both say that Paul Volcker's approach in 1980 to 82 to, to deal with inflation is the right way to go. It's just a question of when. Now, what I want people to, to realize is that Paul Volcker being a leading member of the Trilateral Commission and that this entire process of collapse that we're, we're facing currently, this, this, this Titanic that's about to go down, unless, unless changes do uh, are introduced. I believe I'm an optimist. I believe in, in possibilities here. But unless people realize that all of these things were planned and designed in order to create a controlled disintegration designed to blow in order to get an effect back in 1968, 69, 70, as the Trilateral Commission itself was being created. People don't even know what the Trilateral Commission is for the most part. And if they do, they don't realize that this has all been designed to get this effect of chaos. So that's what I want to sort of go through today a little bit with the audience. Um, the way I, I wanted to do this um, would be to one, tell people a little bit about what the Trilateral Commission is. So who are the members? What, what, what is it that came online after John F. Kennedy died, after, especially after Bobby Kennedy died and, uh, and ex it was already there in 1973 when it was officially created, but it really took over under Carter. And this is what, what completely annihilated the world, all potentials that the world had to develop, including the United States um, throughout the 1980s and 90s to the present. So um, I want to do a screen share just to, just to show people a graph, just to yeah. give people a bit of a, a longer scope here. Um, you got to make me a, um, a host though. So if oh, you go okay. to participants, yeah, yeah, yeah. let me, let me, let me do that. Yeah. Learning this new stuff, folks, this new stuff here, the new way of doing it. Okay. I'm gonna... yeah, we're experimenting with zoom here for the first mm -hmm. time. Make host. Got it. Yes. All right. You're now a host. Okay. So screen share. Uh, let me just get this up. So <clears throat> this is the first graph I wanted to share. It's, uh, it's basically how the United States under Volcker and the Trilateral Commission was turned into a fire economy. And it's something a lot of people have probably seen already that fire means it's an abbreviation for finance, insurance, real estate, real estate versus the formerly productive manufacturing economy that the United States once was. <laughs> uh, and that, that you see clearly from 1947 when um, you have manufacturing making up upwards of 28% overall as size as far as percentage of G GDP, um, collapsing all the way down to, up, I mean, 11% in 2009, it's, it's much less today. And inversely, you have the inverse rate uh, of the, the fire economy, right? The finance services, real estate uh, speculation going up to 21.5% from its lower 10%. Now you can see that that crossed over around 1985, but the, the process has been a, an interconnected nation stripping the U.S. has lost its ability to produce for itself, to have agricultural uh, industry. That has been undermined. Is that an accident? No, it's not an accident. We're going to get into that. And then there's another way of looking at this regarding the, the three variables here of agriculture, industry, and services. So the things that keep you alive as citizens, the things that your money should be always tied to and investing upon improving through time, uh, you know, scientific progress, are the means of producing the things that are needed to sustain your, your life of people such that you could then do fair trade with other nations. So you produce enough for yourself and then whatever excess you have, you, you trade fairly with, with your neighbors. That's, that's a healthy version of globalization that we never saw. 
So what you see there is a longer uh, trend from 160 years, 170 years. Um, and you can just see the, the clear breakdown where services are just increasing at, at consistent rates all the way. And this again ends at around 2011, 2012, all the way to becoming almost 80% of the economy of the United States, including Canada too, the same, same rates. And meanwhile, industry, which had almost hit 40% overall of the labor force um, at the end of World War II, is consistently brought down, right? Um, and I, again, that's even less today, 10 years, 12 years, 11 years later. Um, agriculture, yeah, the labor force should go down as technology improves in agriculture. So I won't, I don't think that the collapse in agriculture as far as percentage of labor force is that indicative of the crisis, but the other two definitely are. And as we will see the, the amount of farms that have gone bankrupt and taken over by Monsanto and Cargill, that actually is also a factor too. You, you know what's amazing, man? When you look at, when you go back up to the fire, the fire economy chart, right? If you go right, yeah. right, right back up there. For the people that are watching this, right? I want you to think about this. What these idiot engineers have done, these, these powers that be, these curmudgeons, these morons, these idiots, these psychopaths have done is this. Everything about finance, insurance, and real estate should be components that bolster and support a physical economy based on manufacturing, okay? It should exist. Mm -hmm. Finance and insurance and real estate, all these things should be attachments. These should be the appendages to a robust physical economy based upon manufacturing. Yeah. But we don't have that. No. They completely inverted it. Yeah. And again, when by inverting it, they've created all these negative field feedback loops that when you allow finance, insurance, and real estate to run rampant, as we're seeing in the latter half of this century, I mean, you know, latter half of the, of, of the, of the 20th century on into the early aughts and to where we are today, what you're seeing is, is the negative feedback loops that are creating capital distortion, excuse me, destruction, that number one. Number two, it's, it, 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 it's, it, it, it's creating a, a, an environment where there is no mark to market. There is no price discovery. There, the assets are so overvalued and devoid of any sort of reality. And this is a danger zone. Yeah. This type of setup right here, where you have the fire, the finance, insurance, and the real estate being so lopsided to manufacturing and a physical economy, it only benefits the grifters. It only benefits the crooks. That's yeah. just what I wanted to touch base on real quick. Absolutely. I mean. it's, it's, like, it's like dessert, you know? Like, there's a place oh for dessert God. in life. But yeah. you don't want to just have every meal as dessert. At a certain exactly. point, it will kill you. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> you know, ha having, having these things is fine, you know? Having, having you know, a, a place for insurance and for finance services and, in, and uh, real estate, even all of these things are fine. They're... In, that, but you don't want to have that become your entire economy. As you said, there's support for something higher. Um, <clears throat> but it's been known for a long time that you could make a lot more money easily by speculating on housing or speculating on anything, uh, oil, anything commodities, prices, uh, currencies, rather than building something which takes patience, time, foresight, planning, years of not getting returns until finally a piece of infrastructure that is big finally bears fruit. It takes a lot, a lot of people have lost that sense of long-term thinking, which is why they felt for these traps of make money now, forget about the future, you'll be dead then. So um, <clears throat> this, is, uh, this is part of a nation stripping 
uh, program. It's been thought through. It was applied, and it was not. It was also applied. If you look at the next three graphs I, I put together, are just on advanced science because a fact of life with human beings is where our 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 caring capacity, our how many people we can sustain, is always limited based upon whatever technology base we use at that moment, which gives us a certain relationship to certain limited resources that are better than previous sets of resources that let's say our grandparents or great grandparents had to deal with based on the lack of knowledge that their society lived in. So new knowledge comes with new powers of sustaining more people at higher qualities of life. What drives that is creative scientific progress. Now, if you look at what happened after John F. Kennedy died, and we see here is a peak of, of percentage of GDP investments into NASA. NASA used to be the force driving everything else in the economy. Right. Um, that peaks in 1966, and it begins to be slashed systematically year to year. Like everything you have, your microwaves, medical technology, mining equipment, has nothing has been untouched and revolutionized by discoveries made in the in NASA. But but, but Matthew, yeah. Congress is about to spend 52 billion dollars on microchip research. We're coming back. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! Yeah, who's gonna control the rare earths? Who's gonna control control the resources? Uh, no, the whole thing is such a fraud. Uh, and, 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 but you, you could just see how this has been constantly done, done away with. So we had 4.5% of, of GDP going into the cutting edge pro programs of NASA, where we were supposed to already have colonized Mars by 1985, according to JFK's agenda. Uh, we were supposed to already have been far, far more advanced than we are today. And none of that happened. NASA was completely obliterated. Apollo was was cut and canceled by 1973. Um, and we've never gotten above the 1% mark. And now we're even below the, the 0.5% mark to the to this very day, despite Trump's attempt to try to shift gears on this. It's still there's nothing happened. Kamala Harris is running this. Um, the other thing is that's that's on the macro domain of science on the micro domain of science. We talked about this last week, your audience probably remembers uh, fusion power, right? That yep. was supposed to be the next thing. The world was going to transition off of coal and petroleum and get on to uh, get on to nuclear power, third, fourth generation, such that fusion was supposed to be the cutting edge thing of the 1980s. According to the, the planned rates of investment into fusion technology uh, and research reactors that had to be built to test out what are the best techniques, there's many different approaches you could take. And these were all being explored and invested in, in until the mid 1970s, where we see a complete sabotage as that rate, you see that curve from 1970, um, all the way to the end of 1970s, 1976, 77, there's a consistent increase that then all of a sudden is sabotaged. And it, it, it is pushed back down below the 1978 fusion never level, where it's maintained at a third of that of that never level today, just to basically pay for this, the, the scientists' salaries, but not give them the means to build the things they need to build to test their ideas out. So it's just demoralizing and whole generations and, and until the old people who had knowledge die off and the new, the new breed of young, young scientists don't have the real knowledge of building anything because they're just stuck in computer model land. And you can see the, the actual um, uh, strategies that were available for different rates of investment that would have gotten you fusion power they were all much higher. None of them were, they were all ignored, um, giving us now this current dismal figure. And the last one is the overall U.S. Uh, spending, uh, government spending in non-military related science, R&D. That went down from 2.5% in 1976 down to less than 0.5% today. 
So that's all I wanted to just show for these three graphs. That doesn't prove the intention. That just proves that what the real nature of the, the atrophy is. Because Janet Yellen, all of these, these idiots in Europe, they could deal with the, the oncoming hyperinflation. And, you know, Deutsche Bank, Deutsche, right? They, they, these guys might have, a, it's more of a sensitive spot for them what inflation is. They're, that's why they're, they're speaking with such a, an extreme language of, it's a time bomb that's going to rip apart the world. Like they're really afraid because they kind of have a more direct experience from their grandparents and great-grandparents of Weimar 1923, where, you know, complete hyperinflation for a sustained period wiped out the Reichsmark. I mean, it, it, everyone became a billionaire, but there was no bread, right? Bread cost you trillions. So <clears throat> that was something that's that's there in their mind. They, they know that more than other people, but they're still dumb. The way that you could deal with inflation is by remedying the graphs that I just showed. You could, you could increase the abundance, the free energy in the system by investments into serious economic productivity. That's a, that's, that's an, a way to deal with inflation, the way, the way the Belt and Road is actually building mass infrastructure. That approach that the United States used to do back in the 1930s and 40s and 50s and 60s of investments into the overarching uh, national power, that's what JFK was all about. Um, that would undo, that would, that would be one way to deal with inflation. Also carving out the, the cancerous tumor of derivatives, of speculative assets that are not tied to any real, real value. That's another thing that would deal that would go a very long way. That's what Roosevelt did in 1933, right? Um, he declared war on these Wall Street speculators that speculated ironically on real estate in the 1920s, roaring 20s, and then they controlled. A, they had a controlled disintegration in 1929, where all of these different uh, financiers called in their broker call loans all at the same day, right? So that anybody on the J.P. Morgan preferred clients list was able to then sell early, make a, make a fortune. And then when everybody else goes bankrupt during the, the bubbles blowout, they were able to purchase pennies on the dollar. And, you know, it, we just saw fortunes multiply as a, as a giant wealth transfer occurred um, in 1929, all the way through 1932-33. Now, what Roosevelt did, unlike Yellen, un he didn't just manipulate interest rates. He didn't just print more money. Uh, to bail out Wall Street or too big to fail banks. He didn't do that. Yes, money was printed. Yes, there were interest rate issues that were that were dealt with. But he went and he broke up the too big to fail banks. He broke, he actually went in yep. with Glass-Steagall. And that's what people, they avoid that because that means a fight and they're afraid of that fight. But they, he went in with the PCOR commission and he forced these, these speculators to show how they, they've been influenced in the economy. PCOR commission, right? Ferdinand PCOR was a lead investigator who had subpoena rights to take J.P. Morgan to trial and force the public relevate, relevate, revelation, revelation, revelations um, of how these bankers manipulated the world into that, that uh, speculative enterprise, that bubble that they then blew. And hundreds of bankers went to jail. And, but then by breaking up with Glass-Steagall under Senators Carter and uh, uh, Steagall and Glass, no, Senator Stiegel and, and uh, Congressman Glass. Yeah. Um, they were one was Republican, one was Democrat. One w was less good than the other. But the point is, they both they they didn't want the U.S. to collapse, and they were able to agree on that. So they passed let or they they introduced legislation to break up the speculative from the productive commercial functions of banks. Uh, I know Harley Schlanger, who's often on your show, uh, is talk talks about this a lot, and it's so important that people let this sink in. Because by all of a sudden saying 
that it's illegal to take people's savings and speculate speculate with them. You can't do both if you're going to be a bank. You, you got to do one or the other. If you if you do clean, boring, useful banking, you will be protected by government insurance. You will be then we will bail you out if need be. But if you've speculated and you lose bet, you don't get bailed out. You collapse. That's what we didn't do in since 2008. We've been just bailing out everybody. Um, <clears throat> and I want to. So again, it's that back, just like back then, it was an intention to get that effect because the 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 outcome of the of the Great Depression that they orchestrated was to introduce the solution, which was a great reset bankers dictatorship under the bank of the Bank of England, the Bank of International Settlements and the League of Nations, kind of like today's NATO uh, city of London. It's the same. It's the same beast. It's the same great reset of the World Economic Forum. It's the same type of philosophy and the same methods. But but Franklin Roosevelt sabotaged that. He went into the Bankers Conference in London uh, in 1933. He took the he removed the U.S. from all participation in any of the the events that were supposed to consolidate a new unilateral central bankers control of world of nation states. He said, no, we're not going to play with that. As he was doing his fight inside of the United States and as he was unleashing national credit through the Reconstruction Finance Corporation to invest into the Tennessee Valley Authority, the rural electrification, the Hoover Dam, like thousands of other smaller projects along the way too, um, to really start building the U.S. out of the crisis to regain the, the lost manufacturing, uh, the lost steel production that had gone, I, I mean, something like 50% of U.S. steel production had, had been destroyed by the Great Depression. That was all built back up by the time the U.S. entered World War I. And meanwhile, what, what else were the bankers doing? They were funding Hitler. They were funding Mussolini. They were funding Franco as the miracle economic solutions to restore order to the world. These were these were fascism was an economic solution, and um, and so this is this is what FDR had to contend with, which has been written out of our history books um, to this very day. This is the same thing today. So since uh, Bobby Kennedy was killed in 1968, and and Charles de Gaulle was ousted in 1969 in France who were sort of the, the, the two leading uh, champions to revive that, uh, that fight that FDR had last waged, or JFK also tried to, to pick up that torch, and he did a valiant job until he was taken out. Um, but when Bobby Kennedy and, and de Gaulle were, were also ousted, one through killing, one through a color revolution in France, um, the, the same thing was applied, a controlled blowout of the system but it, it was going to be more difficult for the oligarchy now because the U.S. and the Western economies had spent now 25, 30 years of building themselves up after World War II into strong, productive nations. How do you get somebody who's capable of producing for themselves to willfully destroy themselves and their kids and their grandkids yet unborn? That's not easy just to go and do that. So this took time. It took a lot of planning. And the one thing that the one of the driving organizations uh, to bring this forward was set up by David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski. And we, we mentioned this at the beginning, the Trilateral Commission. And this was uh, the manifesto for the Trilateral Commission was written in 1970 by Zbigniew, who later on becomes the, the national security advisor under Carter. Um, Henry Kissinger is a member. David Rockefeller III, who is the uh, president of Chase Manhattan, um, is a co-founder of this thing, uh, who bankrolls it. And the idea is that under the, under the Cold War, the three nodes of world control are going to be the United States, Western Europe, and Japan. 
And that's the trilateral <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> I love how that, that whole entire thing just blew up in their faces. I, I wonder what was the last thing Ziggy thought before he croaked. Oh, man. I mean, I, I'd like to think that he was a little bit embarrassed, but I don't know if these guys are capable of that. But it's a joke. It's a total joke when you look at these, these three basket, basket case zones today. Uh, completely incapable of even governing themselves, let alone trying to govern the world. But that's what this thing was set up for. And, and Zbigniew in his uh, uh, Between Two Ages, America and the Technotronic Age, Technotronic Age is how yeah. he called it. Yeah. Um, he, he considered 1970, to however long it takes, as we're seeing it's 1970 to 2000, uh, 2021. He considered that an interim period between two ages. The former age was the industrial age, uh, of, of scientific progress and growth, that age had to come to an end for the greater good in his mind. That's how these guys think, uh, because it was unsustainable. The more we grew, the more we were going to set nature out of equilibrium, which is its natural state. So between that age, there was this period of change. That's what we're living in at the end point of now. He was at the beginning point of that because he created it. Um, and then the new age that this utopian age was what Samuel P. Huntington, who was also a trilateral commission member um, called for as, you know, the age of, of the, the, the constant clash of civilizations. And while at the same time, you, you would have a end of history era, right? This, you'd have a, a new hegemon, a, a Leviathan that would control the, the divided small warring zones under a world of, of no creative growth, no change. It would just be, you know, <laughs> essentially a new Roman ne empire. Yeah. Ne Neo-feudalism. Neo-feudalism. Exactly. Yeah. So they love that. They're like, you know, there's an, an unfortunate amount of like death of innocence that has to happen, unfortunately, but it, that's the, that's what the computer models say. And so we'll do it. And as big news said in his uh, between two ages that quote, the technic, the technotronic era involves the gradual appearance of a more controlled society. Such a society would be dominated by an elites unrestrained by traditional values that is like national, you know, belief in nationalism, God, family. Those are traditional values that the new elite would not be affected by at all. Um, soon it will be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen and maintain up-to-date, complete files containing even the most personal information about the citizen. These files will be subject to instantaneous retrieval by the authorities. And he goes on in this ugly, ugly way, but they're, they're really a God, it's a God complex that he's putting, that he's obsessed with. And this he writes in 1970 as the manifesto for the trilateral commission. It's created in 1973. And, uh, and um, if you just look at how many of these trilateral commission members became high level executives of, of Carter, because it really took over under Carter. And you have Walter Mondale, Carter's vice president, Harold Brown, the defense secretary, Cyrus Vance, secretary of state, Michael Blumenthal, the treasury secretary, James Schlesinger, the energy czar who said that essentially uh, uh, nuclear power is, is unnecessary. Um, and Paul Volcker himself becomes the Federal Reserve chairman um, in 1979. So these are all trilateral commission guys. Henry Kissinger, as I've already said, is a trilateral commission member as he's putting online the NSSM, the National Security Study Memorandum 200, that calls for the targeting of 14 uh, poor nations that want to develop industry the way Jap Japan had done. Uh, Mexico, Pakistan, India. Uh, oh, it's a no-no. No, it's all a no-no. And he, he clearly lays it out that the U.S. foreign policy has to let go of its former uh, traditions 
which involve like, you know, under John F. Kennedy or Eisenhower's Adams for Peace uh, or, or FDR's plans with the Shah of Iran in South America, the, the former U.S. tradition had been to help poor nations pull themselves out of colonialism by developing, manufacturing, big infrastructure, full spectrum economies that had to finally be put away with. And the new policy for the U.S. foreign policy had to become depopulation, especially regarding nations that want to uh, use the resources by technology. Because his, his logic was if they if they develop if they develop the way Indira Gandhi or uh, President Bhutto or uh, uh, Thomas Sankara uh, all wish to to see. That's and all dead, by the way. All dead. All dead. All Assassinated. Dead. Not a coincidence. Uh, but his logic was if they develop, then those those people who will be at a higher standard of life and are industrialized and will start utilizing the resources under their soil. But that's in the strategic interest of the U.S. to maintain and control. So we can't let that happen. Thus, and he goes through different ways to promote depopulation um, and it gets blood curdling. Withholding food uh, is one of them. Um, so these guys are cold technocrats, really no access to basic empathy or morality. And like you said, for any nation who tried to resist that policy, um, we we know what happened to their leaders, either regime changed or uh, or assassinated, including anybody who wanted nuclear power. And that includes President Bhutto, who uh, was killed under, uh, you know, in, in Pakistan in 1979. And he literally writes in his in his prison prison writings uh, before he's hung that it was Kissinger who uh, arranged his assassination. Um, We've got Indira Gandhi, who's gunned down. Her son is also uh, replaces her, and he's also uh, killed in a plane crash that's that's orchestrated. We got Thomas Sankara. We know who the CIA orchestrates his kill, yep. um, using some of his inside guys in Burkina Faso. Um, many others. Lopez Portillo is not killed, but Lopez Portillo, who also wanted to utilize Mexico's um, uh, control over their oil, which is they had a lot of oil, but they, he wanted to use that as a way to in to sell on the open on the global markets, but then to use the proceeds to invest in nuclear power industrialization. He was ousted um, with a lot of assets traders within his own cabinet. So it happened across the board. And and um, again, Harley Schlanger has written extensively about this, um, uh, along with, and I've, I've used a lot of the, the work from EIR in pulling together some of the history. And it's just shocking to look at where this momentum was going and how, you know, for example, people like Reagan, when Reagan came in, he, uh, at the beginning, at least, he didn't like the Trilateral Commission agenda. Him and his, uh, you know, he had a, um, a vice president who, um, whose name is all of a sudden escaping me. But his vice president, oh, Paul uh, Laxalt, that's it. Um, they were anti-Malthusian. They didn't believe in depopulation the way Kissinger did. And they wanted, they, they were organizing meetings with Portillo of Mexico and, and Indira Gandhi and trying to provide assistance uh, to help them actually industrialize the way, the way that they wanted to. And what, what happens? The Rockefeller machine goes into operation. It runs a scandal to oust uh, to force uh, Paul Laxalt to, to step down as vice president. And who's brought in? It's George Bush Sr., the, the guy who ran the CIA. He's brought in now as a trilateral commission guy into, into Reagan's world. Reagan is shot um, by Hinckley, who's tied to, to the Bush family. <laughs> you, can't, you can't even write this, man. You can't even make this up. 
No, Hinkley's like having, you know, lunch with Jeb Bush. He's like a, a friend. He's a kid who's a friend of the Bush family, lives just yep. down the street. You know, he's put through these psychological Tavistockian brainwashing sessions and the, the kid becomes a Manchurian reading Catcher in the Rye and, and is deployed to kill Reagan. What is it with Catcher in the Rye? I don't know. It's, a, it's something. Every single like, one of them. I, didn't, I don't feel like I wanted to kill anybody after reading it, but it's, Me neither. it's weird. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the guy who killed Lenin also was reading Catcher in the Rye, right? Yeah, yeah. That's weird. I don't know. I don't know. If you ever, if you ever find anything on that, let me know. Um, but definitely MK Ultra. It has the mark, the makings of MK Ultra all over it. So when by the time Reagan recovers, he loses a lot of his cognitive capacities, and he's a much more malleable guy at this point. Um, and Kissinger ends up becoming increasingly one of his trusted advisors, and yada yada. But the point again to get across is that Paul Volcker. Okay, all of all of what's happening after 1970, actually after after the ousting of De Gaulle and the killing of Bobby Kennedy is what as soon as Kissinger gets influence as Secretary of State and George Shultz is coming in there as well. These guys are arranging what? Number one, the ousting or the 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 detachment of the US dollar from the gold reserve standard. Yep. They float the dollar into the world markets, and all of a sudden there's a new set of rules that comes in with that. Now, all of a sudden, the value of the dollar is no longer tied to measurable industrial output or anything like that. There's nothing real tying what allows your dollar to, to increase or decrease. It never decreases, but decrease in terms of the money supply or the value of it on the markets. It all becomes tied to speculation increasingly. Kissinger does next. What does he do? He, uh, he orchestrates um, the oil shocks of 19, yeah. 1973, which the later on, the, uh, the Saudi oil minister for OPEC admits in 2001 uh, to the London Telegraph, he admits that this was completely orchestrated artificially by Kissinger. It was not simply the OPEC nations going, going uh, solo on this. Um, he, Kissinger, and, and there, there's this author I, I had recently read called Bill Engdahl, who wrote uh, The Century of Oil. Yeah. And uh, it's good because he actually goes into how exactly Kissinger ensured that tankers replete with oil, petrol would be kept off off of like just outside of us um ports and not permitted to actually pr bring the oil so people were induced into a psychological trauma just like they were um like that shock therapy of 1929 to 1933 of just shock people with a, a sense of scarcity um that was the sort of same thing done in in that way where miles of cars had to wait at gas stations that were empty no oil and prices skyrocketed uh vastly you know um something like 400% increases, which were all uh, foreseen and even planned out six months earlier at a Bilderberger group meeting, which Engdahl documents um, in 1973. So there's a whole thing was, was planned and that drove the increased rates of inflation throughout the 1970s that speak, that spiked to 12.5% by 1980. So it went up, it averaged 7% um, throughout the 70s and then it went up to 12.5%. It was obviously going to go higher. And Again, just like today, the solution was clear. You could either go back to your previous 1945 to 68 uh, industrial mode of, of, of economic production and become a, a, produ a producer society again, instead of just staying in this consumer post-industrial cult of post-1971, or you could do what Volcker did. Now, Volcker, before he does his mass interest rate hikes, and again, Charlottesville Commission guy, right? What is He's also giving a speech at Warwick University in London in 1978, where he says a controlled disintegration, and this is a direct quote, a controlled disintegration 
is a, a desirable outcome of the 1980s. Now, a controlled disintegration of the world economy does people think, oh, he just means a controlled disintegration to like, you know, seize up the flow of credit in order to deal with inflation. It's like, no, not really. That that's the surface reasoning for it. But if you look at everything he's a part of, there it's it means something different. It's it's a double entendre. Um, <clears throat> and that's what they do. So beginning with 1980, interest rates spike to 20%. All of a sudden, uh, what do you do if you're a struggling small and smaller medium enterprise, barely staying afloat under inflation? Um, you can't afford your to pay back your loans. Um, you can't afford those interest rates anymore. You what else happens? <clears throat> Companies that had been building nuclear power that sometimes takes four years to build a reactor, five, six years. It takes you a long time, even though it's, it has a lot of payoff for 40 years. It takes you a long time and a lot of capital investment, very expensive. Um, that all of a sudden becomes financially prohibitory. You can't do that anymore. And James Schlesinger, who's the energy czar, he's already putting it, he's already maximized yeah. the amount of, of environmental regula regulation and red tape that, that companies have to go through to build a dam, to build a, a power plant, to build anything. Also, we're, we're really poised for growth here, man. Yeah, right. It's total self-sabotage. So now you have to wait. You take out a loan if you're a company, uh, let's say General Electric, you, you need to take out a loan to build, a, to build a, a, a nuclear reactor. All of a sudden, instead of it being you know, a four-year loan, now it's an eight to 12-year loan and the interest rates are no longer, you know, 12% or it's no, it's no longer small reasonable. It's now 20%. You can't over time, it, it costs you more in interest payments than it, it does to actually build the damn thing. So you cancel it. And over this time, um, before 19, before three mile Island already 46 nuclear power plants were already canceled. So it wasn't even nu It wasn't even three mile Island, which is what people say. Oh yeah. That caused people to become aware and awake of to the dangers. It's like, no, this is already pre-planned and things like the China syndrome was uh, put in theaters as predictive programming three weeks before Three Mile Island, which is likely a sabotage. It sure. wasn't the fault of the nuclear energy itself. Um, but then after that, uh, over 120 more nuclear power plants under these interest rate hikes uh, are canceled and the U.S. stops building, Canada stops building, any of these things, and we, we cap off. Um, the growth, the physical growth is seized up. And we're again told, okay, the, the, the manufacturing that you once enjoyed, we're going we're gonna to now get rid of things like parity pricing. So what, what, uh, what Volcker does um, is he basically says, okay, all of the fixed rate pricings that were part of a protectionist policy to protect US manufacturing, US automotive industries, we're gonna get rid of that and just float the prices to make, it, to make automotives or steel more competitive with world markets. Now, Ford, Chrysler, they're not happy about this, obviously, but automotive production, U.S.-made automotives start immediately collapse over a two-year period by 46%. Um, you have, what else do you have? You have uh, metal cutting machine tools collapse 45%. Auto, um, agriculture completely collapses. Farms are wiped out. Farmers can't pay to maintain the overhead cost of production, plus the former parity pricing that they once had to ensure that the goods that they sold of their corn or their, their other meat products there, there were laws that ensured that the price could not fluctuate so low on the markets that the, the, the producing farmers could not afford to maintain their, their overhead costs of production. 
Right. You know, there's a li- there, at a certain point, if it goes so low, you're, you're, it's, it's more worth it for you not to produce anything Correct. Than, to, than to produce, spend all that money and then get such little income return back. You can't pay your farmhands. You can't pay for your machinery. You can't pay your, your, your debts, your loans anymore. It's, so it's amazing. Mm. These, these guys, the, 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 you know, the trilateralist, the club of Rome, the Bilderberg group, all these idiots, right? All these guys who think that they could wield power within mm. their little round table groups that they could somehow manage civilization and society and the entire planet is going to kowtow to them they've made a tremendous amount of egregious mistakes yeah and and right now what we're witnessing in the world is an end to not only their rule and their power but the end of their ideology in and of itself it's dying throughout the world it's being kept on life support here in the West and Western nations are paying for it in blood, sweat, and tears. And it's remarkable how the, the level of that. I mean, what were these idiots expecting, Matt? Were they expecting that the entire world, the Chinese are going to go along with them? The Singaporeans are going to go along with what their idea and the Russians are going to go along with them. They're such idiots. Well, this is the thing, right? They did expect that. And that's what they got because back when this is all happening, you have on the one hand, uh, Gorbachev is being installed in power in Russia, right? Yeah. And you have Gorbachev's acceleration policy of just like mass money spending, which obviously then there's so many problems with the Soviet economy. It's, it's, it's at this point, it's such a basket case that this accelerates mass inflation. It accelerates the ungovernability that was already very bad. But Gorbachev is a Western guy. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a Western banker's boy. And he ends up so- solving it by glasnost, uh, by perestroika, uh, by essentially liberalizing the markets, introducing mass privatizations and dissolving the Soviet Union um, massively, which involves the creation of, a, of an oligarchical class run by the city of London and Wall Street over the course of only like 10 years in Russia in the 1990s. There's a conscious. So basically what they've been doing already to the West over the course of several decades, they condense and do it much more, uh, much quicker with Russia, which Thank God for Putin, by the way, because yep. if he didn't come in, there's no reason why the, the Gorbachev-Yeltsin policy of privatized liberalization. And also, Zbigniew Brzezinski in his uh, grand chessboard, he even outlines in 1997, he has a, a map of what he believes the Russia will become, 1997, of three balkanized feder- smaller federations making up yeah. what today we know of as Russia. Um, each one under the control increasingly of NATO, which is expanding this, this Borg-like monstrosity. Now in China, what's happening in the 1980s? You got, uh, I'm going to write a paper on this. I'm actually in the middle of just doing a bit of research, but uh, Zhao Ziyang um, is a guy now who becomes the, first he's the Chinese president or prime minister. Then he becomes the CCP general secretary from 1987 to 89. Who the hell is this guy? This is the darling. He's he's called the Gorbachev of China. He's 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 the replacement of of uh, Deng Xiaoping. Yeah, Deng Xiaoping, right, is the guy who's actually trying to undo the damage of the Cultural Revolution of the Gang of Four. He's the guy who put the Gang of Four in prison after Mao dies, and he's the guy who's carrying on Zhu Enlai's for modernization's policy, which is what we're now seeing, thank God, today manifesting itself uh, in the Belt and Road Initiative and the Greater Eurasian Partnership. However, Deng Xiaoping. Somehow, I don't know how this happens. He his successor becomes this guy Zhao Ziyang, and I'm yeah. I'm I'm bastardizing his name. I'm sorry for all Chinese speakers out there, but this guy goes to the United States. He's studying. He loves 
Milton Friedman, the libertarians. He's trying to bring that all back into um, into China to brainwash, to, to prepare the, the groundwork for Reaganomics and Thatcherism, liberalization, Friedman economics in China in the 1980s. He's setting up a think tank with George Soros. He co-runs a think tank with George Soros and George Soros bankrolls another major think tank in Beijing um, to basically fund scholarships to get talented young Chinese intellectuals brainwashed. They're bringing in Samuel P. Huntington's theories into their schools. Um, all of these things are just happening at such a fast rate while the markets are, are opening up. And the logic then is as the Trilateral Commission in 1973, the Trilateral Commission, sorry, in 83, hosts a Beijing uh, massive conference where, where uh, uh, Zhao Ziyang is, is obviously present. And at this conference, they talk about the need to, to not, to only allow China to be a productive base to only have factories as long as they are energy intensive, labor intensive, and not tied to any national development strategy, no big infrastructure, right? No Three Gorges Dam, no big infrastructure, just keep things like cheap labor sweatshops tied to the ports for exports to Western Dollaramas and Walmarts. That's all that that is supposed to happen. And, and Zhao Ziyang is like, yeah, we could make a lot of money on that on, on that model very easily. So that's what they're doing in the 1980s. And it's not going well. And then all of a sudden you get now the, you know, a fight back. You In Russia, you don't get proper patriots at that time in Russia who can fight back against this liberalization there. And it takes over and it, and it, it nearly destroys Russia, right? Russia is still repairing itself from that damage to this very day. Uh, in China, luckily, they, they wake up. And the thing that wakes up the Chinese really is Tiananmen Square where they're, they're beginning to, to resist this brainwashing of their young and this liberalization. And one of the things that's, that's, that finally kicks their ass and they're like, okay, we can't tolerate this anymore is, is a color revolutionary uh, event that today has become Tiananmen Square. It, the anniversary of it uh, was just a week ago. On, I think it was June yeah. 4th. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> which is apparently this massacre that kills, you know, we're, we're all taught here in the West that there's a massacre. A million people died in Tiananmen oh, yeah. Square. I used to machine that. gunned yeah. tanks, and then they were dive-bombed by aircraft, Matthew, and sprayed by Gatling guns, and then a nuclear tactical device was set off, wiping them all out. And the yeah, place Bashar... is radiated for a thousand years. <laughs> yeah, Bashar al-Assad has destroyed his own people he just is. as he was about to declare victory against ISIS. He just... Yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. It's all psy psyops. And uh, and Gene Sharp is a guy who was on the ground uh, just days before Tiananmen Square. The guy who Operation Yellowbird. Yeah, that's what, that's exactly. what Tiananmen Square is. Is Operation. They ran the beta test. The prototype of Tiananmen Square was run approximately two years ago in Burma. Okay, uh, or what's it called? Myanmar, right? It was it, 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 it was it was run in Burma before they brought it to Tiananmen Square and have Tiananmen, and what do they do? They set up shop where? In Hong Kong. You have the CIA, you have British Intel. They were in Hong Kong. They got a whole bunch of agent provocateurs. They got the whole thing together and they set up Tiananmen Square, which is the completion of Operation Yellowbird. Exactly. And uh, um, Hong Kong was still under largely British control. I, I mean, it was a, yep. it was a British colony. They, they called the MI6 CIA of the Pacific and they still do. That didn't yep. really ultimately change despite the fact that it was headed back over in 1997. 
Macau was only handed back over to the Chinese in 1999. It was a Portuguese colony all, all this time. But these are still intelligence operations that are working as part of an operation to undermine China. That, that's why China it takes a very hard line, no, zero tolerance stance on a lot of these things. Um, they, they should. Yeah, because frankly, if you, if you give an inch, I mean, there's so many active operations that have been active for decades to carve up Xinjiang and call it East Tur Turkestan, to carve up uh, Tibet, call it Free Tibet. And back then, back in Tiananmen Square, there were also uh, Tibet riots being orchestrated by the CIA, Radio Free Asia, run oh, by the man. CIA. The Dalai Lama was speaking to the people as well, or at least a voice passing itself off as the, as the Dalai Lama, probably the Dalai Lama, because the Dalai Lama's whole family has been in bed with the CIA going back to the 1950s, and that's been documented. Um, so there's so many points where they want to do like what Zbigniew Brzezinski was talking about with Russia, with the Soviet space and, and balkanize it all. And then also break up Russia itself, the main, main Russia, as we know it, they want, they've had plans. You could see graphs, images of trilateral CFR commissioned think tanks talking about breaking up China as well. Um, and so Zhao Ziyang was ousted finally after Tiananmen Square, which by the way, there was no massacre in Tiananmen Square. I'll just say that right now. People can do their own research. Um, that's a psyop. But Zhao Ziyang was ousted. He was permanently exiled, like kept in his own home. Take All honors were removed forever. Like he was shamed properly as he should. His collaborators, a lot of the leading collaborators uh, who worked with him, escaped. Either they went to prison or if they escaped, a lot of them just went to the United States where they live to this day, running operations today. And I think you can only understand things like Epoch Times or other other things like that by looking at that network. Um, and then also George Soros was permanently ousted from uh, from China, thank God. It took the Russians longer to, to oust uh, Soros's open society networks and the NED. But um, but so they did want that. They did. And, and you can only understand what is China today? What is Russia today? What is their alliance about today? What is the multipolar alliance? If you understand that, fight that happened in the 1980s and 90s, um, which luckily you had nationalists who didn't want their, their civilizations to be destroyed under this dystopian world government yeah. in those countries. Whereas in the West, the closest thing we really had to resistance is, you know, we had Trump uh, who by some miracle, I'm not, I'm not even sure how exactly, but I mean, there was sufficient amount of, of democratic mechanism left in place such that something like that could be introduced as a disturbance to fight against it and to create a certain, a sort of, for the first time in decades, bat pushback. Yeah. But there has not been a proper uh, nationalist awakening in the West. And so what we now have is, um, I mean, we got a $1.2 quadrillion derivatives time bomb, the world GDP, measurable GDP, not even measurable because the GDP is not measurable anymore. But anyway, the world GDP is like what, 80 trillion. This is 1.2 quadrillion to maybe two quadrillion dollars of derivative contracts yep. that are yep. bets on insurance, on bets that are not tied to any reality, no. um, which have taken over the economy. You got debts that have risen to, I mean, the US debt now is $28 trillion directly of unpayable debts. You got um, global bailouts. And when you count unfunded liabilities, it's, it, it's, it's close to 80 trillion. It really, eh? That, it, it's okay. a joke, man. It, so that's the, the, the numbers are saying that unfunded liabilities and the plus the national debt, you're looking at 60 trillion or 66 trillion. It's actually close to 80 trillion. And that's what we know of. Uh, then when you really calculate all the, you know, all the debt that's outstanding and the, you, when you start counting institutional debt, hmm. financial debt, then you're, you're talking about three to 400 trillion. 
Oh God, it's so that's it, a thing. It's impayable. It's impayable. It's unpayable. Like, like you can't like think about it. when 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 years ago, like five years ago, when when city when the Citibank came out and said, hey, you know what? Uh, we had sixty two trillion dollars on our derivative books as derivative debt. We took it off. We we serviced it. It is impossible. And Matt, I always like to give this example, right? When I tell the average American how what million, billion, and trillion really means, because these numbers are just tr- thrown around all the time. People have no quantifiable measure as to what it actually means. And I ask the average person, what's a million seconds? And they're like, I don't know, like what, uh, you know, five days, three days? No, uh, a million seconds is 12, is 12 days, right? Uh, how much is a, 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 a billion seconds? A billion seconds is, 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 uh, is 32 years or 34 years. How much is a trillion seconds? It's 300 years. Just to give an example, right? Mm-hmm. Just to, just to the, the enormity of it. So when you talk about that your country is 28 trillion in debt, close to 80 trillion in underfunded liabilities, and then you, when you calculate the total amount of debt held by the zombie institutions that are in this nation and by the banking system, you're looking at close to three hundred trillion dollars worth of debt, nothing to show for it. If Americans really understood what that really means, that you cannot wish that away. You cannot print yourself out of this mess. You cannot create a war to get yourself out of it. You are doomed. You are staring down the barrel of a gun. You should be going down to D.C. and lynching these bastards by the the lampposts. They should be having firing squads in D.C. But that's how it is, man. That's how it is. The uh, the thing, yeah, I mean, the whole thing, it's like quantum numbers. Like there's no, the only place that these types of magnitudes have usefulness is in uh, plasma <laughs> physics and quantum yep. mechanics. It doesn't have usefulness in the world that we live in at this stage yeah. of the game, you know? Um, so yeah, like if, if you're going to, like you said, deal with this, COVID is not the cause of the the meltdown. Just like the, the broker call loans of 1929, were not the cause of the Great Depression. That's not what caused the bubble in real estate to melt down. What caused that was the abandonment of the Lincoln policy of pro-industrial development that was, that was known once, once upon a time as the American system of political economy, of protectionism, long-term credit, infrastructure projects to drive the creative growth of your society. Um, that was what, what uh, McKinley, William McKinley, it was an he had a, a direct anti-free trade. It was a fair trade policy that McKinley fought for. And he had a program to help South America develop the most advanced infrastructure and dams to ever imagined in 1901 until he was assassinated. And even though you, you had a small attempt to bring back that policy with a Republican in 1920 uh, named Warren Harding, who attempted very, but could, I mean, he was surrounded by vipers too, and he died by, you know, oyster poisoning. Uh, whatever. Um, there, there was pure. It was a, a, a British London Wall Street bankers' policy of unbounded speculation and free trade, no government intervention, which dominated the U.S. between 1901 to 1929. That resulted in easy money for a few and the, the impoverishment of the many, and ultimately a bubble economy. And bubbles, by their nature, burst by the laws of physics. So that was by creating bubbles. All of a sudden, the empire is able to easily choose when they do their pinprick. Now, what's made today's bubble difficult for the empire is that they can't pinprick it the way they wanted to so easily because you have today, since especially 2013, a new alternative 
political security economic architecture that's been built up under the Russia-China alliance of the Belt and Road. Uh, well, the Belt and Road is the driving engine of, of economic progress that has extensions into the Arctic, into space. I mean, these nations are working on every, but 135 nations have signed on to the framework of this, which has made it very difficult to blow the bubble the way they might have wanted to even a decade ago, where there was no serious resistance to this unipolar hegemony. Today, if they blow the bubble without dealing or, or destroying the Eurasian economic development process, they know that every nation is going to jump from the Titanic onto that new, more functional boat, which actually is going places. Every nation is going to want to survive, and they're going to jump at, a, at an accelerating rate. So they're desperately right now, I mean, rolling around, like flailing, looking for different ways to undermine or destroy Russia and China. Um, they're so they're so insanely afraid of this and there's th everything that they're trying is not really working um we know that biden is going to be meeting with putin very shortly unless he's going to tell him what he needs to know yeah exactly exactly it's it's completely the mouse that roared oh man yeah no that's a good way of putting it yeah there's nothing to it i actually watched the video that you shared uh today of yeah. biden just like stumbling through stumbling through in the most unconvincing way his his speech with his fighting his dementia to try to sound like a tough guy he's got nothing putin is laughing at his face and i i don't know if anything constructive can happen out of that i don't even know if, if biden's handlers are going to let him meet putin face to face because honestly they have no faith his handlers have no faith in his capacity to speak with an with an, with an actual head of state and stay on top of it no so there, I, my guess, my bet is that they're going to do something to even just sabotage the event from happening. They did that with Trump when Trump was supposed to meet with Putin in Argentina, remember? Um, now, um, they're, they're trying the military adventurisms. That didn't work. They've had to, to scale that back because they know that Russia is not tolerating that. And Russia has technology that allows them to counterattack and to bypass their full spectrum dominance policy on the perimeter. China as well. They're, they're trying right now. They're focusing a lot on the PSYOP to get yeah. everybody into an anti-China, like China caused Wuhan COVID pandemic lockdown. It's all a Chinese scheme to create a Chinese world government. That's what, what's being really pushed across all different media outlets from intelligence agencies. And it's seeped down to the left, to the right, all the way down. That, to that, I can't wait till I do that Uriah Heap interview and have him on and break down the whole entire Wuhan thing, which he does so masterfully. Yeah. It's going to shock a lot of people, man. I don't think the audience is ready for that type of shock. Are you going to do that soon? Yeah, we're going to, you know, it, it, what happened was I had surgery and I was out for a little while. Hmm. And um, so I, me and me and Uriah, we just kept missing each other. So I've reached out to him. And I said, listen, man, I don't at this point. I don't care if he wants to do it at like 9 a.m. Beijing time. I'll freaking do it. I don't give a rat's ass. I got to have this guy on because it's so important, especially the guy has a, you know, a deep background in, in, with the DOD. And, he you know, yeah. he worked on a lot of defense projects and whatnot. So he knows his stuff. He yeah. knows his stuff. Yes, he guy's does. legit. You know, so it's going to be an eye opener for most Americans to hear from an American who worked in the DOD but lives currently in China. It's going to be an eye opener. Absolutely, dude. No, I, I'm really looking forward to listening to that. And uh, yeah, it's a complete, as he's going to break down for everybody, um, even ask him some questions on Tiananmen Square. I know he knows he knows a thing or two about that, too, if you want to get into help your audience understand that a bit better. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Eurasian Economic Partnership right now is is the future. And, and that is the only, you're everyone listening in the, if you're in the transatlantic community right now, you're on a Titanic, it's going to go. 
the cause of the the systemic structural rupture that's taken it down the iceberg, it's not China. It's this thing that that killed Lincoln. <laughs> it killed McKinley. It, it, it probably killed FDR and certainly ousted uh, Henry Wallace, who was trying to have a U.S.-Russia-China alliance to avoid a Cold War and to create a new world of prosperity and win-win cooperation. It's the, it's the thing that killed JFK and covered up his murder that it, 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 it was then used, you know, one of the representatives was Alan Dulles, but it's more than Dulles. Um, it's the thing that killed JFK's brother, uh, Bobby and Martin Luther King. It, it ran the coup d'etat to oust de Gaulle in France. It's the, it's the same thing that took over the United States under uh, Nixon with Kissinger and the Trilateral Commission, but it's not just the Trilateral Commission. It's not David Rockefeller III by itself. These are all aspects of it, but it's something more. And the founding fathers of the United States, if you read Ben Franklin, if you read, just read Hamilton, read Washington's letters, they understood the nature of this beast much better than most people do today. Absolutely. I think Putin and Xi Jinping get it. Uh, Putin probably gets it better even. Um, But yeah, definitely. Like this is, this is something which it can only go one way if you let it have its way. But if you act according to natural law, which is what the founders of America, of the Republic understood, um, it it can go a very more natural, creative, multipolar way. We could have a bright future. So I just want to like end my thoughts with that sort of more optimistic way of thinking about the world as it should and still could be um, based on this multipolar system. Absolutely. Matt, very well said. You broke it down perfectly and succinctly. It is a very heady, very large subject matter, and it's something that is a complete opposite of the paradigm that people in this country and the Western nations are used to. We're not used to that. We're, we're used to thinking in such a binary way, for lack of a better word, as you said before. It's a very binary way of thinking. It's you know black or white. No, it's not. This is a complex, convoluted world with a thousand shades of gray. And uh, the more we weed through it, the more we start you know peeling back the layers, the better you understand what the real geopolitical chessboard is all about. Matthew Eric, thank you so much, my friend. It's always a pleasure. Folks, thank you all for listening in. I want to thank you again. And again, check out Matthew's uh, Substack, um, CanadianPatriot.com, as well as the RisingTideFoundation.net. And with that being said, we're over and out.